we often underestimate what we can achieve in a year and way overestimate what we can do in a day. That's the mother of stress. Welcome to the Innovation Metrics Podcast, where we bring you the latest on innovation management. We provide insights on how to measure innovation, innovation accounting, and managing the uncertain process of developing new, sustainable, and profitable business models. You can find links to the main topics covered in this episode and information about the guests and hosts in the show notes, or go to our blog on innovationmetrics.co. Your host is Aaliyah Eilert. So rather than me explaining who your background, welcome to the show, JL, and do you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Aaliyah, for having me on the show today. Uh, I'm JL. I have been a corporate innovator for the last, uh, I think, 12 years of my life uh, in a large FMCG or CPG company. Uh, in the last four years specifically, I was actually very much anchored around innovating on an innovation system within a large corporate company and also driving um, the actual innovation strategy and how it translates into activities and projects uh, on a smaller scale. So you can see from a systemic innovation to innovating the strategy, as well as the innovation projects that then land in the market. So that was, that was what I have been doing uh, professionally for 12 and a half years uh, in a company. Uh, recently, I started my own gig doing consultancy and coaching for leaders and teams around innovation systems, innovating, as well as their own lives and their own career. So that's really uh, keeping me a lot uh, excited these days. Wonderful. What's, what's your company called, the current one, ah, just to share it with the, the, the current company is called Level Up, up with mm -hmm. 3Ps, uh, dot okay. com. Yeah. Okay. So you can find more in the show yeah. Uh, notes. Yeah, we certainly put all the links in here. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Yeah, cool. So so today we want to start off with exploring uh, the, the, the problems that corporates have, specifically corporates have, with um, after a product is launched, an innovative product is launched specifically. How do we, why do we need a different way of measuring? What do we want to look out for? And, and why do we even measure in the first place? Right. Mm. So I guess the issue is, and correct me, one of the issues is that when, when we finally decide that we should launch a product at, at a certain scale and it doesn't perform the way we, we anticipated, right? So that, that happens, right? That's 80% of the time, I think. Wonderful. 80% of the time. <laughs> I think this is really an interesting, um, an interesting issue. I've been a while ago, I've been looking into it and it's, mm. you know, for obvious reasons, it's really hard to find really good data. I remember mm. that one of the, I forgot what industry it was. I think the highest success rate was around 40%. Like that was sort of the okay. best thing in, in an industry. And, um, that was probably more adjacent products, you know, like changing changing small things or so I'm not quite sure yeah. yeah and because today's episode is about metrics I would like to understand uh, when you talk about the 40 percent what does what is the success metric yeah. for those 40 yeah. percent yeah that's fantastic right that's a really good question so I think what we I don't know that's that's a clear answer I don't know I mean it's 
a long it's a while ago when I looked into into that. Is success even defined in most for for most projects? Clearly, is yeah. really the question. Yeah. What's and to ask you back, um, yeah. do you think that is often the case that success is clearly defined, or is there a fail criteria in uh, with each launch? Clearly. Mm. So from a corporate uh, setting, success is very typically defined by absolute turnover or the gross margin or profitability. Mm -hmm. So one of these financial metrics, right? The supply chain team might think of success as how many units can we shift out of the factory? Are we able to forecast the demand and the supply accurately? That could be their success metric. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the general manager of the country, the success might be, okay, are we profitable? Can we have a good story to tell at the global HQ? Uh, so success is and wonderful and people. Yeah. Wonderful, perfect. And when we stay with the financial success criteria, I think very quickly, very quickly we can see that this is what we would call typically, what you just described is what we would typically call a lagging indicator. So a lagging indicator, such as return on investment, yeah. is, is something that is, is lagging. So after everything already happened uh, for a while, so it doesn't really tell us whether or not we need to change course. So as somebody like you who really want to know early on whether or not you have to change course, um, that is not satisfying. Is that correct? Exactly. That's, that's very correct. And um, to build on that and to expand a little bit, uh, in a, you know, traditional or brick and mortar kind of product and ch channel. Channel is mm -hmm. how we reach consumers and customers. Um, the idea of pivoting is not very often heard anyway. Yeah. If you think about the industrial uh, style of innovating and putting products into the hands of the consumers or the customers, it is a very long set process that is kind of set in stone. It's not like a button we can stop and then tweak and then do it again, which is why I think, you know, I've, I've been in the industry for 17, 18 years and people don't talk about pivots once mm -hmm. a thing reaches the market mm -hmm. and simply because it's hard to do. I think it's in the 1980s when Toyota started the idea of Agile. That was very interesting, right? Because in an automobile company or industry, you don't really stop the factory to do tweaks because then it costs time to restart and so on. You lose productivity. But Toyota realized, okay, I've, I've given the liberty to one factory to do whatever they want. They learned how to make pivots along the way. Even though in the first year of their experiments, they reduced production uh, dramatically. After that, it took off. Why? Because the little pivots actually improved productivity so much. So bringing the analogy back into corporate innovation, it is actually, um, I would say, at least in the company I used to work with, people started to become more aware of the need to pivot. And hence, this whole conversation came about. So, so we know the, the term pivot, and probably most, most listeners who, who listen to a show like this would, would be familiar with that. But that's because we're mostly concerned with trying to find product market fit. And that is probably not very well defined either, but, you know, trying to get to the point basically of yeah. saying, Hey, let's scale this thing. Right. And then, yeah. then we see if we can scale it and then we hit other issues. 
but is was that is that um in the context of your former work, was that always clear? Was that said, hey, this product has got product market fit. Now let's scale it. Is that was that is that what happened? Or was there or what was yeah. the terminology? Was that at least used? Yeah. I'm smiling widely. Um because there's no such concept as incubation or a small scale launch. Remember, we are coming from the industrial age. Everything is done at scale from day one. So if there is a mistake, that mistake is a huge mistake. Yeah. Um, at least from the company that I was working with, uh, we push a button and everything gets made, everything gets shipped. If it doesn't sell, it sits in the storehouses or the warehouses. And then write-offs happen. So if there is really no product market fit, nobody wants to buy, the retailers or the customers then return this stock to us, we buy them back, you know, and then these products appear as free gifts for employees, costing a lot of business waste. And now we are all into sustainability. Can you imagine the amount of um, raw material waste that has gone into it? Uh, and also, of course, from an ROI perspective, return yeah. on investment perspective, that's a, a complete disaster uh, for the team. And the whole yeah, the most costly experiment you can imagine, right? Exactly. So you so fail on a big scale. You fail. So, and that was every single time. So where, like the yeah. where you used to work at that time, at least that was you did not have a a, a different system implemented, where, or where you made small smaller bets beforehand yeah indeed um and hence the whole innovation system within the company has pivoted has changed to allow for yeah. that smaller experiments up front before mm -hmm. we push the you know make 10 million units button right yeah. so before producing let's say 10 million units okay we've learned that we needed to work on smaller scale experiments so that we learn fast fail fast in order to make a better success. Yeah, wonderful. So within that system, mm -hmm. then that that was then eventually established. There was a so you that had that moment where you said, okay, this product has product market fit and it has enough risk reduced that we can yeah. launch it at larger scale, basically, right? Did that have a name? Like, was that was there an overarching system to that? Was there an uh, an overarching terminology such as? something similar to product market fit, maybe a different term or so? Ah, okay. So we have different gatekeeping processes. Mm -hmm. So every time we pass a particular gate, yep. so it's like a funnel, right? You pass a particular gate, then you can progress to the next thing where more investment is made, more commitments are made. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, there's a product launch decision, and again, there's no incubation, so there's no small scale. Let's make 1,000 units, see how these sales go. It's like, okay, we make, it's a, it's a proper launch. We have moved from the pilot plant where we make 1,000 units for in-house experiments. Uh, and then we go and do the mass production. So that that is the moment at which we decide we're okay. going to push launch. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Great. Okay. So so this is really nice. Um, so for us, because of today, we want to see... You know, often what what I'm busy with is to say, hey, what metrics do we need before we say launch? So you know, high, how how large does the sample size need to be? Uh, right? What kind of evidence? How yeah. much uncertainty is acceptable? And so on, so on. But what we want to get to today is, hey, even then, we there's still a lot of uncertainty, and we need to continue 
measuring and monitoring behaviors or other other metrics that can tell us early on whether or not we're actually on track, whether this mm-hmm. whether this thing actually works, right? And so yeah, just trying to trying to find that a bit better. And uh, and I guess as you said, the, 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 the magnitude of failure is just the same. Even with the old or the new system, uh, you, you're still producing at the same scale and the same people yes. are. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So yeah. it's, it's significantly harder to, to make a change uh, Once it goes in, into in that market. phase. Yes. Yeah. Once it reaches the hands of the retailers, it's really, really hard to make a change or people are resistant to making a change. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, yeah. Where shall we start? Yeah, it would be great to 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 <laughs> to name a few of these really big issues, right? They might be obvious to everybody, but but maybe not. There, there are a few structural challenges, right, uh, from a big corporate perspective. Um, so, for example, because of specialization, the people developing the product mm-hmm. can be different from the people actually launching the product more so in a global, regional, local setting, where it's a matrix organization, the people who came up with the consumer need or the consumer problem to be solved, develop the idea, and actually producing the thing in the local market could be completely different people. So the the sense of ownership as it passes on from conception stage to actual prototype to actual thing that gets produced in a pilot plant to the thing that actually reaches the retailers and the consumers, they could be different people and having different KPIs. So mm-hmm. their idea of success is actually different as we move across the whole process. Right. The neglected child in this case happens to be what happens after the product goes into the market because oftentimes the development team is and then go, oh, great. Now you go deploy, you make a success out of it. I'm on to my next shiny new toy. That's what happens. Do you think there's also an issue with, before we go on, sorry, this is, this is something that is personally dear to me, that the development team then, because they have proven uh, to a degree, oh, nobody can see my air quotes, right? Uh, because they have proven that people want it at a certain price point at least. Yeah, or, you know, have proven a, a theoretical lot. Uh, product market fit. It, yeah, yeah, wonderful, nice, yeah, and so, and they also then lack often. Oh, that's what I think. That's my bias. How do I ask this question differently? What about their responsibility post launch? They like, yeah, hardly ever, hardly ever, hardly ever. Right? Hardly ever. In, in the in the corporate world that uh, I was from, um, very little ownership. I mean, they could be showing numbers such as. Even, even the deploy team could be showing numbers such as, oh, this is the impression I've reached. This is the click-through rates or, or this is the number of sales I've made. Um, but nobody would be willing to come in front of a decision board or investment board and say, look, I screwed up here. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Post-launch, you mean? So the, so the development yeah, team never exactly. came in post-launch. Yeah, great. No. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the person who launched it could be, the, could be different from the person managing the portfolio six months later. Yeah. So this six months later, is this guy coming to the, the investment board and saying, look, this is how the thing has done, but why this screwed up? I have no clue. I wasn't the one who launched it. So that's so that really of- so there are really two problems, right? Like like so one of one of the things, and I remember people saying that literally like it doesn't matter, it's not our problem anymore. Like we mm-hmm. had success. Not my shit. 
you know, we have some great prototype and we sold it and everybody was hyped and now people have to do something with it and yeah. whatever, right? We've got our yeah. KPIs, whatever, fulfilled. Exactly. And then, so from a organism perspective, from a company perspective, uh, it's, it's quite unhealthy, right? And so, and the other problem is that a lot of the insights and, uh, and softer things like empathy are also lost in that process, right? And the way oh, we... Yeah. I mean, at least usually in, in, in systems that are not highly sophisticated, Connected. I suppose. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Although uh, as much as we try to um, chop down the silos, uh, it happens, right? People have enough on their plate for their day job. Yeah. Mm. Everything gets added on top of, especially in this COVID world, you know, everybody is just doing a lot at the same time uh, and actually not having that physical connection in the office if they are even co-located. The same, yeah, yeah, they're in the same country. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, things that fall through the gap. Do you have some, do you have some insights into how to make the handover um, a bit smoother, either from a systems or from an interpersonal perspective? And with smooth, uh, smoother is not very specific, is it? Um, let's say the knowledge transfer. Yeah. Yeah, is, is yeah. there something that comes to mind where you're saying, hey, this is, this is really, uh, uh, this pays off well, for example? Yeah, you know, the first time I saw the business model canvas, I was really excited about it. Hmm. You know, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, looking at the, the, the canvas, it's like, okay, imagine if day one, the development team and the people who are going to deploy it actually have a conversation around the canvas that would be so much more powerful. Why? Because then we'll be talking about who are the partners we need, what is you know, the core of the solution that we're offering, what are the needs we want to um, solve for. And the local team or the deploy team could already bring in their local nuances from day one and have a proper conversation or structured conversation around it, sharing different data points, you know, mm -hmm. be it observed or actual um, data-based uh, information. Uh, yeah. So that could be one way to have that honest, open conversation up front. Yeah. And also during the process to have check-ins. So if you think about, let's say, a Scrum or an Agile approach where you have more connection points. So the people working on the project actually brings in, uh, in a more structured manner, um, the end users, for example, for inputs and feedback so that they can pivot wherever they are working on. So instead of, you know, let me go into my dark room, work on this for six months, 12 months, and then ta-da, this is what I've come up with. Having that regular check-in or conversation points would actually help and also help with um, the sense of ownership by the deploy team. And the final point is yeah. when the actual project physically hands over. So uh, my last job involved foods, for example. So mm -hmm. foods is a very local thing. So you have mm -hmm. local sourcing units, you have local factories producing it. So at the point mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. development team passes over, that knowledge transfer could be, you know, a physical document that transfers, a proper conversation, a working session to already hash out what are your concerns, what's going to make this thing break, what's the highest risk, what's going to optimize uh, this thing, what's the biggest opportunity. Having conversations from both sides to hash it out before the handshake and the handover could be very helpful. Can I can I assume that at the end of the of, of that career at least, did you start using or the teams that came up with the products 
So not what we actually want to talk about, not the post-launch uh, teams, but before that, did they start using uh, report cards for their experiments? We Was tried that already? to. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we tried yeah. to. We, we've, we've given the trainings we could and mm -hmm. given yeah. that I probably, you know, I don't know, 3,000, 5,000 marketeers, it's really, really hard to enforce a tool, you know, a process. Okay, um, great. Okay. The adoption, I would say, is very, very low, if any. It's very low, indeed. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Mm. Wow, how interesting. Because yeah. people see it as a, oh, another thing to do. Remember, mm. I come from a very established corporate with very mm. structured things that they need to put mm. together for their investor board. So if it's not requested, it's not done. Really? Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, it's it's because yeah. it, I think it's one of the, um, I have high hopes for that. It seems to be, yeah, you're not, you're not the first one um, complaining about the issues around adoption. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at least in theory, and maybe to inspire, mm. we're maybe where the culture allows or yeah. where it works for our listeners, I think, and maybe correct me, right? It would be great. Maybe you disagree, which would be fantastic, just as just as good. Is if we use report card, if we use it in a structured way, where we say, "Look, this is what we assume. This is our hypothesis. This is the method we use to 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 get new data points and to to decrease to lower the uncertainty." Um, this is the the type of information we got back. Maybe linking to some other resources, what we've done during that week or the month uh, to 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 gather to gather new insight and. Um, you know, because it's so digestible once it is standard. If if an organization develops a certain standard where they say, right, so this is this is what we did, this is what we learned, this is the outcome, uh, yeah. then you know, you would assume the next team has a way of digesting information rather than you know my big frustrations with hey we have to go through PowerPoint and other reports and and nobody really understood what was going on and you know you what do you think about that? Or, yeah, um, it gets done by the early adopters within the company. So imagine there are 3,000 or 5,000 people. Let's say, you know, uh, the early adopters, let's say uh, 200 people actively do that, okay? And that's a high number, okay? I'm being very optimistic. Let's say the 200 people are doing it um, and, and they're also only doing it for their biggest projects. I think the the, the, the challenge that I didn't talk about is that everybody is doing too much. So we are mm. actually innovating from a scattergun approach. So we're hitting everything, hoping something lands without a structured way to understand which of these have early signs of success and which of these should we double down on. Yeah, yeah and that's actually linked to um, the core of today's session, really. Yes, great. Yeah, I have this. I have this theory. I'll just share it with you. Like yeah. the, the idea where, you know, I I understand it's tedious, but accounting is tedious, right? And we have and we have bookkeepers and we have accountants, and um, you know, in a sense, you know, the the because of the term innovation accounting, I'm, I'm coming to that because I think you know filling out like report cards and storing insights that um, we can cost certainly. Because we paid money for those insights, like the, you know, the team got a wage, and maybe they paid money for an experiment. So certainly, from a costing perspective, this is something that can be can be uh, related, but also for the valuation side. So because you know we have more usually more clarity around the project, right? So when we come back with new insights, we should be able to recalculate 
say the most likely outcome uh, of this project. And so, uh, you know, maybe it is fair to have somebody in the company or people in the company who really specialized on saying, you know, hey, this is how you fill this out. Um, you know, have you done it? Uh, you know, you, where are your receipts, right? Have you done it? Where's your bookie? Where should I book this, right? <laughs> I, 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 you know, like uh, to, to make a bit of an analogy, right? And so yeah. you don't have to do it. Maybe that's the solution. I don't know. I wonder what you think yeah. the solution could be. Like, I think we need to jam this. Um, maybe not in this podcast, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so getting people to do it, um, it could be. But it's also about the team people, the, the people who are actually working on the projects to show up and be willing to learn and adopt a new way. Um, so it's, it's a bit like herding cattle. So unfortunately, because we are operating in the industrial age, even though you know, we have moved on as a human race, we're still bound by systems and processes. So whatever you're describing sounds really, really exciting. And I'm already thinking, okay, if I were to set up a company from ground zero, that's absolutely the guardrails are already set in place. And let that leather up to bigger learnings because, you know, I can see so much potential. You know, as a, as a person who started from market research, I'm obsessed about data points and insights and how that ties together to the broader story. I can already see the, the power of that. Um, um, and, and the funny thing is, in the tail end of my corporate career, uh, we were trying to launch this thing called the 100-day tracker in the company, which is really about post-launch, what happens, and we want to get some early indicators. If, is this working? Is this not? And because it is such a new muscle that we have to build, despite the best efforts in lending, cajoling, coercing, whatever, you know, we've, we've tried. It's not working. At least it was not working when I left three months ago. Um, so it's extremely hard. Wow. The way to do it, yeah, mm. carrot and stick or mm. scratch everything, start from ground zero, you know, we, or something in between. Uh -huh, interesting, yeah. Great. Let me try to take a breath and think. So we, we spoke about a few issues uh, before launch and then the handover, uh, a few issues there. And then we can only imagine that post-launch and post-launch pivot get even harder. And we have a few insights of why they're hard to begin with because we don't have all the appropriate information to begin with, uh, potentially, right? I think that's one of the things yeah. I heard. Correct me. Yeah. Yeah. From a brick and mortar concepts uh, or, yeah. or brick and mortar business, it's very hard to get the timely or nuanced data points like what you would get from a direct consumer platform, for example. Great. Exactly. So the type of business um, mm -hmm. that we're talking about makes it harder because it's not mm -hmm. not a SaaS product, for example, or right. Yeah. Fantastic. And. Um, Good. So, but uh, this sounds interesting. May we start with the experiment you ran there, the 100-day tracker? 100-day tracker, yeah. Yeah, great. So what happens to the thing 100 days later? So what we normally get, you know, as running a business, you typically get things like sales numbers pretty quickly. You mm -hmm. get, you, you know, your finance team can calculate the gross margin pretty quickly, yep estimates how long does it take to pay back your initial investments. So you get yep. those kind of financial metrics 
pretty quickly. What you can also get from at least a corporate perspective is, you know, your agencies, your your you know your media agencies are going to give you impression numbers, reach numbers, those kind of things. Uh, what happens very often, at least you know, ten years ago when I was working in a local market, um, people are going to show a lot of beautiful numbers with upward trends and beautiful line charts and show how amazing that launch went, right? <laughs> Why? Because, I mean, that's human nature. You don't want to go to your boss and tell them what a shitty project that was, mm. yeah? And that's, that's, that's human nature. So what we need in order... So, and, and I was talking about the whole scattergun approach of innovation we were taking. So let's say we're launching, let's say, in a particular market. You know, in, in a normal situation, we probably have enough budget to launch three or five things well. But because we were not certain what actually absolutely have product market fit, we put in more, like insurance, we do more, right? Great. And hence, instead of doing three projects per person, each person is handling nine or 12 projects. That's another problem that we can talk about in another episode. But for this, what happens is we're putting into the market, let's say 20 different innovation projects or products that we are supporting half-heartedly, if, if, if even any, okay? Okay, let me, let me ask, sorry. So, you, okay. so, the very, so your approach to de-risking or to increasing the likelihood of success rather is to place more bets. Yes. And then the problem with that is that you placed actually more bets than you were really able to monitor and support. Is that is That's that correct? Correct. Okay. That's mm-hmm. correct. So you know, it's, it's almost like throwing a baby out and hoping that it survives. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, we pray and hope, and we all hold hands and we watch. Um, if we watch, as I said, the early problem is people are not watching. People are looking for whatever signs that show that it is a success. When that happens, what? The terrible thing that happens is that the resources continue to be diluted, proliferate. What happens is the real thing that actually has a huge amount of product market fit doesn't get the resources it needs to scale. So we're not maximizing the returns from the innovations yeah. that actually have a success, yeah. have mm-hmm. a chance of success mm-hmm. because yeah. we are spreading our energy across the 19 others. They're just sapping and not returning. And you're not killing them so early. Yeah, yeah. We've already done it. Let's just let it roll and see what happens. Uh, or another common uh, thing is, oh, the retailers will kill it anyway, so just let it be. <laughs> but what happens is then your supply chain um, continues to be very complex. So rather than reducing the number of products that they need to make, they continue to make a lot. And when they don't sell after one year, two years, three years, you know, three years... Uh, expiry dates for a lot of products that has non-foods, a shorter time for food and refreshment kind of products, then you get things like, okay, they are near expiry. We have to absorb them back. And that's when the write-offs happen. And that's when employees get a lot of free gifts uh, on their office tables. (laughs) So, um, and by then also responsibility is probably diluted. Maybe the person that was responsible for the launch moved on. Is that, yes, like, I mean, one of the biggest six secrets in corporate innovation is launch something and then leave, right? Like that's yes. the way to survive. Hopefully be usually. promoted or go yeah. to another business. Or a different company, tell a big story. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, now we are being very skeptical, but yeah, yeah. and you know a lot of and, and I've got yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying it to be to be nasty. I think the system is built yeah. in the way yeah. that just just you have no it other chance. It rewards this behavior. It rewards that, correct? Right? It doesn't reward. Hey, you told me really early on, which is what we're trying to talk about, and, and we're getting really nicely stuck in, in the problem in the in the in, in describing the problem, which I love, but. Uh, it, but it just does not reward telling the company Something is wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I guess, yeah. So, so those companies who will adopt that rather early or sooner should, should really increase the odds of success. And so how do we do that? I guess maybe we should start talking a bit about it and, and I've, you've done it. Certainly you've certainly done those trials, right? You've done those experiments yeah. around how do we do that? How can one of a, a very large, as you described, a very large organization start adopting that start experimenting with it and uh, getting better, right? Starting to get better. And so not to make so it much of a hard one. break, but yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Step one would be really about agreeing what are the metrics we want to measure. Because as mm -hmm. I said, people want to show up in meetings telling stakeholders, their bosses, their bosses' bosses, how amazing that project went. So we have to, first of all, kill vanity metrics. So metrics or line charts that make, them look great. We have to really get to the roots of, okay, so what do we need to measure in order to know what is it that we need to change to allow even more growth to come into the project? And to do that, we actually leverage the pirate's funnel, you know, borrowing from the lean thinking uh, and the growth hacking. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is the framework we want to use? And, and we landed mm -hmm. on the pirate metrics Uh, simply because the R is really exciting and uh, amazing <laughs> at that point in time. Um, but yeah, I think we have to, you know, explain a little bit what the Pirate Funnel is. Yeah. Leah, so, do you want to yeah, start us? <laughs> yeah, let's uh, outline it a bit. So um, yeah, the Pirate Metrics for Startups. It was uh, first, it was coined by Dave, Dave McClure. It describes basically four... Uh, five key metrics. They would be acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, and referral. So because uh, many of you may have heard that, but because the first letter is A and A and then RRR, so it's what we think a pirate sounds like. And maybe I should make that ah. now. Ah. Both of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's a team spirit. So they basically answer certain fundamental questions we can with those four uh, with those uh, five metrics we can certainly explain all three levers of growth or figure out if the three levers of growth that we usually have available we don't want to get too technical um, work so acquisition so how many people for how much can i acquire are people even coming uh, can, can i get them in the funnel and basically for how much That's quite quite important, and then we see how much they pay. So with activation, are they coming in? We're answering under that metric. Um, you can sub-segment those metrics a bit more. I think I rushed through them a little bit, but maybe not too much. And do they do they like the product? When do they like the product? Uh, how long do they do they do they hang around before they buy? So there are certain questions we we can answer under 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 that category. Um, and then the next thing usually is retention. How long do they stick? Do they buy again? And for how long? 
which is very important. Again, that's one of the levers of growth. So this is the what Eric Ries called the sticky engine of growth, where acquisition is the paid engine of growth. So we have to pay for people to come in. With retention, they stick around. We don't have to pay anything else. They become the customer acquisition cost over customer lifetime value goes down and down and down the longer they stick, which is really beautiful if that happens. And then, oh, well, then revenue, okay, that's maybe how much we can charge in that one. How much do we actually get out? And then with referral, we have uh, how many sort of referral coefficient may be familiar to some people or the viral uh, the viral coefficient rather. So how many of our existing customers do refer new customers? And sometimes they're not even customers yet, not to get too technical and they start already referring, but that's the other lever of growth, really the third one, the third important one uh, that tells us, that gets us customers in more or less for free. Um, sometimes we incentivize customers to give us new customers and then we have to pay, but uh, those are basically the three ways we can grow. And so this is really what we want to monitor. And that's really the original uh, metrics of the pirate funnel. And later on, after a couple of years, I think, um, the Growth Tribe came up with another A, this awareness. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. kind of stuck it at the start of this R metrics. Um, and I just want to talk about it because from uh, our corporate perspective, awareness has been the traditional measure. So I started with how brand teams would go back and show, you know, this is the number of impressions we've made. This is the people we've reached with our GRPs. Um, so that traditionally has determined how much money we spend on media because media is a huge cost in the entire traditional uh, sales channel. Yeah. Uh, and hence in the particular system I created just before I left, uh, awareness is actually one of the metrics as well. So borrowing from the Growth Tribe uh, yeah. founders. Yeah, this is yeah, this is great. So uh, we had a, a, to be transparent here, we had a little pre-chat about this. And um, I, I usually try not to use it. I, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's misused. And it's, again, it brings in a, a potential for, for vanity. But I think what's important to, to mention here is that when, when we use those metrics and when we talk about vanity metrics versus actionable metrics and so on, I, I, I guess every metric can be used as a vanity metric. The trick is really to see, to think, to think of the conversion steps in this funnel. So if, if awareness actually leads to, to acquisition and, and, and we, we measure that appropriately and we can say, right, so we, we, we create more awareness here um, it will lead to something else um, that we can measure in a certain way, then that's probably fine. I, I, that's how yeah, I think about good. it. Is that good? Yeah. yeah. And you remember how I started the story. So we are, you know, we can only support, let's say, three projects, but we put 20 out there. So the bottleneck in many of the cases could be there's simply no awareness. Even if you've designed the best products with a, an amazing product market fit, but if people don't know about it and they come into a store with many products and brands in front of them, they don't know to pick out your brand, not because your product is crap, but simply because they're not aware. That sometimes is the critical bottleneck to unlock, particularly if your other R values are super high. 
So for example, you're getting a great referral, you're getting a great retention. Once people try, people love it. And then we know that there's a gem in there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the thing, the metric you want to double down on Mm -hmm. that could be awareness. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Fantastic. Great. Yeah, so I guess what the when when we think of it as a funnel, it's a bit more complicated because the funnel has actually loops in the funnel. So when you think um, you know that, but for the for for the listener who's not quite aware, um, it would be so nice to draw this right now, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe we should do a drawing below. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yes, we do that. Perfect. We've got one anyway. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we we put we put a we put a graphic below. Yeah. Yeah, really nice. So we have, um, so when you think about acquisition, that when somebody refers, it's actually a loop back into acquisition. Um, the loops can be placed differently depending on your business model. Um, but um, what I was trying to say here, JL, was actually something else. It was, Oops. Uh, which, yeah, something about a funnel. Rescue me. I don't know. Yeah, so let's move on the from that. Is complicated. <laughs> so, so let's go. <laughs> okay. So in your, let's go back to the hundred day um, yeah. to to your program. Yeah. And so you yeah. said, okay, so you know, you're in a large corporate setting, and things are usually kind of left alone traditionally a little bit, and you know, things will sort themselves out, and hope I won't get punished. Okay, but now you will. You want to look at within hundred days, which is in your context early. Yeah. You want to yes. you want to monitor things and after is it correct that after these hundred days, you want to make a decision? Is that I mean, so, so the system was set up and you had the the leverage to make the decision as well, at least in theory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Data based uh, decisions great. rather than I feel you feel. Yeah. <laughs> what what kind of decisions you wanted to make? So we actually kill and pivot and pers- so so kill pivot persevere. But all these three were. Possible is that correct? So you yeah, it, you were able to possible. kill or um, yes. So kill is something that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in fact, in in my webinars when I talk about the framework, I talk about kill all the time, and then there will be comments that say, "Oh, I love this kill lady," <laughs> because the kill lady. Such... <laughs> yeah, I'm the kill lady. Uh, you got to be careful. It might be the might be the title of the podcast. <laughs> I would, I would love for us to have a kill metric mm. or, or you know, mm. things like celebrating failures, celebrating the projects mm. we've killed and what we've learned. I, I would love to celebrate a culture like that. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it's still a distance away. Mm. Um, but in essence, the first thing we want to understand is, is there any glaring thing we can pivot or we need to pivot to change? So what any of those metrics that we talked about is there a bottleneck somewhere that's causing a block in the conversion? Is there something that we need to know? So let's say um, we, we can we take a yeah. forgive me, Jay, can we take a product? Can we take something arbit- yes. like something arbit- like not a real one, but like an example maybe that might help us guiding us uh, through the next through the next part? Um, should we stay in food yes. or maybe electronics? I, I think hardware would yeah. be good, right? Because we stay there. Maybe maybe something you didn't actually do. Maybe maybe an electronics product or I don't know. I'm just picking something random. Cat food. I don't know. Where should we? Okay. Let's let's uh, cat food is a bit. Okay. Let's let's do dog food because I have a, a, a three year old. Okay, sheep, we do dog so food. I feel <laughs> very passionate about dogs. Okay. <laughs> um, let's talk about dog food, right? So mm-hmm. imagine you launched 
a, 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 a dog food product, yeah. put mm-hmm. it into the market, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened after 100 days is we've learned some things that people are saying online, that they're telling each other. Maybe we've done a little survey amongst the people who bought uh, the product and understood, okay, what did they like? What did they not like? So it's really in the you know, activation metric, right? So when people used it, did they enjoy it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Did their dog appear to enjoy it? Did they rush towards the bowl or do they mm-hmm. leave food behind? Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go quite graphic. You know, how was the poop like? Mm-hmm. Is it matching the, the owner's expectation of how a healthy poop should look like? Because it's very much linked to the food. And based mm-hmm. on this experience, people are talking about it. And we want to be able to hear about it, learn it, in order to decide, okay, is there anything wrong with the product that needs to be fundamentally changed? Great. Great. So basically what you... Let me try to rephrase and see where where I got it and where I didn't. So one of the key metrics for you in the, um, in the, in the activa- was around activation and under there you had a sub-segment of questions. So for dog food, it was, so the happiness, the satisfaction level of your customers was really what you were looking at. And so the, when, you, when it came to the metric, what was, did you have a quantifiable fail criteria for that? Like, were you able to, did you have qualitative and quantitative expectations you were setting before those 100 days clearly or or not great question um so numbers on its own are not meaningful because they lack context and they lack framing so what we do is often we try to identify okay what is the the question what what was the measure we really want to understand and what would be a good number for it a good number could be benchmarked to something that was a previous launch or a previous product that we have. So we know kind of what percentage is good or what good looks like. And then we measure it, we see how far it falls short or lands above what we think is an acceptable number. What we like to do is also to benchmark it against competitors because yeah. we don't want to do navel gazing. So if you only look at your past launches, yeah. Um, Great. You know, you, so I mean, you, you had it. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. So you basically had the ability to benchmark, right? Very often, yeah. some of the people listening and, and in a different context, where it's more maybe about transformational innovation, you you have not, you don't even have the ability to benchmark. It comes a bit, becomes a bit more complicated. But so you had that ability. So how did you measure, let's say, for dog food, how, how would we have measured the satisfaction level of the dog? and the customer. This is exciting because I've actually never worked on dog food before. Uh, yeah. so, so you could measure things like how fast does the dog rushes to the bowl? Great. How fast does it take to finish the food? Great. Um, yeah. And maybe even the usage experience of the food, right? The opening of the packaging, if it's a sachet, how easy it opens, if it's a can, is it easy? And that's, the human being answering the survey. So it could be through surveys. It could be through observations. So contextual yeah. inquiries. So you guys did contextual yeah. inquiries. Okay, great. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we can also do digital ethnography. So, you know, yep. putting a camera, either them feeling, filming it themselves. You know, now with right. camera phones, super easy. Um, getting people to actually share the experience and talk about it live, right? So the problem with 
and surveys is that it happens after the point in time. And then a lot of things have happened between the actual experience and the moment in which they respond. So that's the limitation of surveys in a classic sense. Uh, we try to navigate around that through yep. the more digital methods these days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and post launch, you you're not using those indicators anymore. You're saying, or uh, we could, but it's usually because imagine if we are launching twenty things into the market, the actual number of people who buy it will be quite small because people don't know that this new thing exists, and to find these people who actually bought it is also difficult. Um, what we do more. So instead of you know what we call finding the needle in a haystack, where we try to fish for people who have actually used it and do a survey with them, we also rely on uh, ratings and reviews, for example. So for example, if there's mm. ever uh, you know online store selling it, people often leave a review. If if it's a category that people are more passionate about, in this case, pet food, people are very passionate about their pets. Right, so they're sh actively sharing information with one another in groups and forums on reviews, and say, "Oh, my dog absolutely loved that." Back for more, um, you know. Right. That kind okay. of that that kind of information is great data. Okay. So even though, yeah. No, this is no, sorry. I was just very active at it. This is fantastic. <laughs> so, so would you? <laughs> yeah. So to. Uh, so do you how do you quantify that before the launch? Do you say we 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 need at least X positive reviews and this is positive versus negative, or like we want to have a positive versus negative review on Amazon? It's the wrong one, but uh, in an in a, yeah, we, in could. A, we could be or how how would you have done like how would that be done more? We we typically before launching we typically put benchmark against something that we have or something mm -hmm. that's out there in the market. Mm -hmm. right. So if it's at least on par, then you know you have a parity product. But we're of course aiming for superiority, right? You're aiming for a differentiated superior product to put into the market because of all the money that's invested to put a product into the hands of the customer, you definitely would love a strong retention and referral because yep. that's going to bring exponential growth to your business case rather than, you know, driving awareness all the time. Um, yeah, so that's something that we look at before launch. However, because, you know, if people are working on 20 projects and they don't have money to support the project after launching, you can imagine how little money is there to fully validate or learn about things before they go into the market. Okay, yeah, granted. But let's say maybe in, a, in an ideal world, right? Yeah. Like let's, let's be... Um... If if you don't mind, let's draw this like ideal yeah. scenario. Maybe, Hypothetical have, situation. Yeah. Right? How how would we how would we do this ideally? Right. So what would be you you want to make a decision on to kill? So how would you ideally then make a make a kill decision? You you would also look at financials, right? At how yes. how much did it actually sell? You would benchmark that as well, I suppose. Absolutely. So from a, you know, there's the three bubbles, right? Consumer desirability, technical feasibility, as well as the commercial viability. You would look at these three circles before you make a decision whether uh, this is a positive case or not, because you don't want to create something priced so expensive that nobody wants to buy it. And hence your whole commercial viability falls apart. So those are the things that innovators should already take into consideration from day one. 
And what happens in a corporate world is often the people developing it is full of utopian vision. Ah, this is how it should be. It's going to be the most amazing can of dog food. You know, you're going to open it, you push a button and it springs open. Nothing is going to stick to the sides of the can. You pop it out, you know, and the whole thing disintegrates into delicious looking chunks. You don't need a spoon so that you have one less thing to wash. Perfect product, right? <laughs> I just painted my own vision of my belt dog food. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, right? There's a lot of those yeah, stories. And your R&D involved. folks, yeah. your, mm. your R&D folks would say, yeah, I can make mm. that happen, but that costs 20 bucks a can. And your competitors, by the way, are selling at $2 a can. You can make that happen, but who's going to buy it at that price? Mm. So a- another big gripe I have as a corporate innovator is we often test things in body parts. Uh, so we test the idea, we test the packaging, we test the functionality, we test the features, and at the end or towards the end, we slap the price tag on. And that's when, you know, your conversion falls apart. <laughs> because, yes, you're developing something so amazing. Everybody who loves it is differentiated from the market, it's definitely superior. But when it comes at 10 times the cost, oops, sorry, we can't sell a Tesla to a, you know, classic Toyota Una, if, if I want to use uh, cars and an analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Great. You see certain indicators, either financial indicators not working out or, and, and you may have a hunch why, right? Maybe people are not as satisfied as you, as you anticipated. And you have, let's say you figured out more or less why, right? Mm-hmm. Or your channel doesn't work, but you know, Another channel works, or maybe none of the channels work, and uh, you you need to make it, or you should ideally make a change. Maybe yes. run us through how that how that works, and what doesn't work, and what should ideally work, maybe. And and that yeah. So an early indicator could be a non-consumer. So when when we call the retailers, they, they we call them customers. Uh, so a retailer might come back to us and say, okay, this particular flavor is not working. People are saying it's too spicy. Okay. Huh, yeah. It's not selling. It's a disaster. Yeah. You have to fix it or take it off the shelf. Good. So in a classic industrial sense, we'll say, okay, it's impossible to reformulate. The button is pushed. The factory is locked. Just start with 10 more tons of this thing. Okay. That would be a classic disaster. However, the, the actual project team, uh, not my team, some amazing people uh, in another part of the company, they decided to get together, use qualitative um, product recycling uh, to learn what is the optimal level of spiciness life. So what happened is they put a group of consumers into a room. They cooked up the food. They served different versions of the food. People ate, gave feedback. And behind the one-way mirror, there's a group of chefs. Our innovation chefs are working tweaking the formulation to optimize the level of spiciness based on the feedback. Interesting. Yeah, once they, Um, so as the people are tasting the first round, they're talking about it real time behind the mirror, there are people working on it. And, you know, people take a break, have a cracker, have a glass of water, reset the palate. Round two comes. And that's when they very quickly came to an optimal new formulation. 
This is so Updated the recipe in the factory, pushed the new product into the actual shelves, retailer happy, consumers happy, life happily ever after. That's the name of the book, by the way, I launched. <laughs> oh, yeah. We didn't mention it in the beginning. Yeah. So. so the whole story is really about how we can use a metric. This particular metric is a feedback from a retailer threatening to delist us if we don't tweak it. Project team got back, you know, did product recycling using a one-way mirror, real-life consumers, tweaked the product, updated the formulation in the factory, improved the recipe, continue selling well, everybody is happy. So this one way in which we can actually activate this framework. Did you not have a lot of backlash? Did they not have a lot of backlash when that happened from... Uh, from supply chain or how did they manage to get over it? Like how did they manage to get everybody on board or how would you in an ideal world or where the system is not there? Maybe not so specific, maybe more, you know, maybe theoretical dog food. Having that clearly defined and aligned goal. So there's something in it for everyone, Mm. right? Everybody has the big, you know, growth in sales uh, KPI in their goal setting with their line managers at the start of the year. So they know they want to drive growth. How will that growth happen? The growth will not happen if we have to write off 10 tons of that product. So it's to nobody's interest if we just sit and do nothing. Right. So having a clear direction of, okay, we're not hitting the target. There is a way to close this gap. It might be some radical thing like stopping the machines and tweaking it before we start the machine again. Are you in or are you out? I and mean, having that clarity uh, and really holding hands and going it together is quite critical in a matrix organization. And the reward structure, ideally, right? So that... Yes. Because it's a, it's a portfolio pattern. No, like you're not petting yes. as what you're describing, where we're not just we're not talking about you know one person. It's not it's not an it's not one Elon Muskish approach, one right? Yet. Exactly, right. It's like mm-hmm. it's really like, and everybody should be rewarded because you know you could have been just like as likely my team that you know yeah. that didn't manage just just as much as yours. So um, having a better reward structure and really a system is really the answer to that. No? Yeah. And open communication, I would say, you know, so what are the barriers to making? I mean, we are very comfortable with telling each other why this will not work. Mm. I think it's about flipping Mm. the question to, okay, Mm. what, what will we take to make it work? What's the stakes? Then we make an informed decision. Okay. Do we want to do it or not? Rather than just hiding behind the barriers. Yeah, great. No, yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. Like psychologic safety and uh, radical canto, no? I'm like the biggest fan. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's very hard it's very hard to innovate when you can't really when you can't disagree. When you can't be open, when you always have to be on eggshells. Yeah. Yeah, totally true. That's measurable, by the way. Absolutely. And make it a KPI, you know? So yeah. if, if it's not measured, it's not treasured. And oh, then nobody one. will work yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, cool. 
I feel like we. Okay. We, uh, one of the things that I would also like to underscore is metrics are metrics. Um, what really differentiated this is uh, we also wanted to understand the who, who is the consumer persona buying this, and why they are buying this, right? So you would assume that in a large corporate. We had tons of money. We would have done the whole consumer persona value proposition canvas before we proceeded. But sometimes we launch things without actually properly thinking it through. It's a hunch. It's a gut feel. We do it. The risk is low. Let's just put it into the market and see what happens. Sometimes what happens is the people we were intending to target are not the people buying it. So sometimes what happens is the product might be over or under engineered for the actual early adopters of the product. And if we have a system in place to understand who is buying it and why are they buying it, we could actually pivot that thing if we need to, to optimize the rest of the funnel, right? So imagine if we were over engineering it and we've done that in one product, uh, you know, US team. So we've done an organic stuff, right? with the best ingredients and so on, we were targeting the really highbrow uh, consumers. What happened is that is the average person on the street buying this product. Then they were finding, oh, it's a bit too expensive, you know, for this product. And of course it's expensive. We put in the best things into it and we actually had a hit on the gross margin. So it's a loss-loss. You know, it's a lose-lose situation. So imagine if we've learned about this in time, we could actually pivot it. So one, we retarget, yeah. right? Yeah. So we decide, okay, instead of the original uh, segments that we are targeting, we pivot it to mm-hmm. target this segment. Along with this, we might make the plan to think about our sourcing strategy. The raw ingredients, they need to come down to the level that we can charge a price that they feel value for money and still deliver the benefits they're looking for. Or we pivot the targeting strategy such that it better targets the original people we want but that probably means we have to do some more consumer interviews and get out of the building to understand, okay, what is it that these people truly want? Is this product we have already in the market meeting their needs? If not, what needs to change? And hence, you know, almost going back to the drawing board for the project. So it's one of these two ways. Uh, unfortunately, that project team did the third way, which is to kill the project, which is also fine because it's a strategic call. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm. I'm slight. I'm slightly. I guess some of the things, you know, even pulling the pulling the product out and and redefining the spiciness level. It's, it sounds like that's not. It, it it should be a scale issue. It should be a a pre scale issue. I suppose in an in an ideal world, right? So the system you should have known it before you push the create ten tons button. So right. So this is and this is like I guess I'm today I'm I'm challenged in asking questions at times because I feel like you know we we're going between because I'm not quite sure because in one in one hand I've got this ideal system in my head that doesn't exist and so. Right. And 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 so the, the metric we would apply at, at, at post launch seems very often seems like it's a, a post launch scale. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's like it's like yeah. one that we should have kind of maybe figured out before. Thought about before. We, uh, you know, we 
yeah, we're trying to help assist uh, building appropriate ah, systems. That, that gives yeah. uh, opportunity. But, um, exactly. That, that gives a lot of opportunity for people like us, right? Yeah. To yeah. find what other, you know, innovation fixes we need to bring. Yeah, there's still a lot to do. And it's really not because of lack of intent. The good intentions are there. Mm. Uh, it's really about focus and priorities and fear. You know, there's there's a lot of fear-based innovation, right? Mm. Like, okay, competitor has it. Let's go do something like it. Then you end up with a lot of Me Too products. Yeah. And even the way they model, like, innovation labs or something or the way that you know oh this is our direct competitor does <laughs> yeah. it this way. let's do it exactly the same way let's exactly. not try to improve let's it. <laughs> create an incubator system yeah because yeah. our competitor has it <laughs> well and, and i think the reason is very much like well nobody can hold me responsible if it goes wrong right mm-hmm. if this insurer yeah. does it we do it exactly like the other insurer uh, if the other insurer does it we do it exactly like that like perfect because like for my personal career that seems like a de-risker. Like if it doesn't work, at least, I, like, tell me if I'm wrong. Right? But I think, yeah, yeah, right, right. Like, what do you mean? I've done it like this big, like the biggest insurer yeah. in Bali. You know? And if I were to apply a coaching lens on this situation, I would really ask your listeners, um, what is the role they're playing? How are they co-creating this system that they allow to remain broken? what is the one thing that they need to do differently tomorrow to start the shift in the right direction? So we can't change the entire system at one go. But if we together ask the right questions, stick to the same behavior, stick to the same principles of a growth mindset, of learning through experiments, striving change positively, a little bit each day, better than the day before, you know. Wonderful. It would be better than doing the same thing and complain about this in five years' time. Hmm. As much as it won't apply to everybody, what is your biggest giveaway or secret for someone to, to get started in terms of corporate innovation? What do you think is your biggest, what would you say is... Um, not your biggest, but yeah, something you could really recommend. I would recommend get clear of what you are here for. What is the value you want to bring to the space, to the either the innovation project or the innovation system? So be clear on your own why, which will then guide you and keep you in that direction even when shit hits the fan because shit will hit the fan we are going through against this giant system that has been built for 20 years. It has kept the companies, the company that you're hired in going strong. So just because you have a radical change of point of view, it's not going to change things overnight. But if you have a strong clarity of where you think your system can go, what's the optimal way of operating, or what's the ideal way of, innovating be be clear about that and then think about okay so what's the one tangible thing i can start doing tomorrow in this week in this month we often underestimate what we can achieve in a year 
and way overestimate what we can do in a day. That's the mother of stress. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So having that intention, and that's how we started in our coffee break, uh, Ilya. The intention of doing what we want to do. Yeah. And then that, that's going to keep us on course. I think this is a lovely way to, to end the episode. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Perfect. So it's on a, on, a high, on a corporate innovation high note. Yeah. And it comes boils down to the individual because the system isn't going to change itself. Uh, and, and we can pay McKinsey's and stuff to come and help us. But at the end of the day, it's the people in the system who's going to be the change. Hmm. And it starts with us. Every conversation we make. Great. Make a change, everybody. Go for it. You've got this. You've got this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for yes. your time. Thanks, Ilya, for having me. Pleasure. Thank you.